So tonight we are going to talk about the holiness of God and the peace of God. So my slides are very limited, but I do have the definitions up here for us. The holiness of God and our definition here is God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. So this is the attribute of God we think of most when we talk about perfection and God being perfect or Jesus being perfect or when people say, oh, nobody's perfect, whatever that. This is the attribute we're talking about. We're not talking about, as we talked about earlier, the perfection of God, which is God's completeness. We're talking about the holiness of God, which has to do with God's morality and his separation from sin, meaning he's without sin And there's no sin in him at all. He's completely free from the presence of sin anywhere. The key word in this definition that we have is separation. Separation. God is completely separate from sin and evil in every way. It can't be in his presence in any way, shape, or form. And that includes us as his people. That's why... We have to be redeemed in order to come into the presence of God. So this attribute very much has to do with our salvation and coming into God's presence. So we have a separation of sin, but we don't just have a separation of sin. We also have a dedication and devotion to, as we have in this definition, seeking his own honor doing that which is good, doing that which is honorable to himself. So God's holiness is not just a passive attribute, something that just exists within him, but it's something that God is active within. He is constantly seeking his righteousness and his honor and holy things, meaning things that line up with his righteousness, his code of justice, his person. we have holiness with the word separation. We have the idea of place. Place is very important. And in the Old Testament, we had the temple and the tabernacle really exemplify or exemplify this concept of holiness. So in the tabernacle, which this is the tabernacle and the plans that were given to God, or given to Moses by God, we have um, lots of things going on, obviously. We have kind of the outer courts, which is all here in the temple. They're actually called outer courts. And we have, here we have the bronze altar, the brazen altar. That was where they would perform the sacrifices that were given daily. At the tabernacle, this is where they would sacrifice the sheep, the bulls, all those different things, Um, kind of just like a big giant barbecue. That was that implement. And then obviously we have here the bronze laver or the, the wash basin where you would wash yourself clean before you were able to enter into the main part of the tabernacle, which were the holy places. So a couple things that kind of demonstrate holiness is we have a separation here. 
the walls separated the tabernacle from everywhere else in the Israelite camp. So the Israelites were obviously a holy nation, something that was set apart from the other nations. And the tabernacle is an example of that. Um, we had the whole camp of Israel, which was kind of a microcosm of humanity. Whereas the normal Israelites were the rest of humanity, and the tabernacle is to be considered like the, uh, the Israelite people. So those that were set aside even further to serve the Lord. And then you had the main fence or the main gate, which was encompassed and set apart the tabernacle complex, just like it set apart the people of God or Israel. And then within that, you had the holy place and then the holy of holies. And this place was reserved strictly for <clears throat> the priests of Levi. So that was kind of a microcosm of the bigger thing where you had the, the Levites were serving the people of Israel. And then you had the Holy of Holies, which is where God dwelt. And that was where God dwelt, God serving His people, serving the world. And so that's kind of, it's kind of a, you know, an expanded view or a, a miniature view of how God views the world. He set apart each thing for himself for specific purposes, which ultimately is in service to God. So we have, as I said, we have the front gate, which prevents normal people, or not normal people, normal Gentiles from going in. Israelites were allowed into the tent or into the tabernacle complex. But they were only allowed in this main area. Once these doors were crossed, only Levites, only Levitical priests were allowed within that area. And then further on, you had the main veil into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest was allowed and Moses specifically. That's the only two people that were allowed within that place. So we have holiness is demonstrated here on different levels. <clears throat> In Exodus, it says, Exodus 26.33 is talking about this veil right here, this, this veil right there. The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So that shows that there are different varying levels of holiness that God expects from His people and that God wants obviously in His presence, is the most holy place where not anyone can just waltz in. But even beyond that, there's kind of a safeguard where it's still the holy place where only certain people are allowed in who meet certain requirements. And we know that in order when you would go into the holy place or the most holy place, the priest who had the job of entering those places would wear a... a cord around their ankle with bells so that if they were struck dead by God because they did not meet the requirements, you could pull them out. So God had specific requirements to go in, and these are requirements of holiness and purification. Now, interestingly, in the Old Testament and in Leviticus, these purification rites were not merely spiritual. They were physical as well. They wanted you to wash your body. They wanted to wash away. That's what this bronze laver is for. They wanted you to wash away the impurities that you had. 
And that really talks, I think that, that tells us something about holiness. <clears throat> we in the modern church really want to make holiness something merely spiritual. Well, obviously, this is a physical place. And it's not just for our benefit that this is physical, meaning it's not just an analogy that God has presented. This is something that God wanted them to be aware of, that physical holiness, physical purity is just as important as spiritual purity. So place and position within the real world or within the world that's around us, within the natural world that God has created, is very important to holiness. It's not just a spiritual trait. It's a physical and a, tra- and a spiritual trait. Um, the prophets, we constantly see whenever they enter holy ground or entering into the holy of holies or entering a place where God was at, what do they do? They removed their shoes because it mattered what you did physically. We see in Isaiah, when Isaiah enters the throne room, an angel touches a coal to his lips to purify him. These purification rites, God cares not just about the spiritual, but about the physical as well. They're not just metaphors or analogies. We see the same um, when we're looking. This is the, so this is the tabernacle, and then obviously the temple was modeled after the tabernacle. And given the plans for Solomon's temple were given to Solomon by God. Herod's temple was a little different, but still a God-given <coughs> plan um, because this was the temple began by Ezra and Nehemiah um, when they returned from Babylon. And within this, the temples created by Solomon and later Israel, you have similar aspects. You have within the the main building, you have the holy place and the most holy place, but then you have all these different courtyards. Here we have the women's courtyard, and what you don't see on this model is this whole courtyard out here was called the Gentiles' courtyard, where the Gentiles could go. And this is where uh, Jesus (coughs) turned the tables on the Pharisees because what they were doing was not right because the purpose of this was to be set apart and holy. So we have these physical spaces in the temple and in the tabernacle demonstrating the holiness of God, the separation. And obviously in the temples they had walls, they had buildings to prevent people from going in who should not be there. Holy places are important, and the place aspect is very important. And that's going to play out even more so when we get into the New Testament outside of the temple. Ultimately, these holy places, these places in our physical space, are wherever God is dwelling. And that can be extrapolated to mean the temple or the whole earth, because the whole earth is where God dwells, which we see a lot of that language in Psalms but God tends to focus on one place, specifically in the Old Testament, to be a beacon to His people. In Psalm 24, 3, David says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? In these holy places, evil and sin cannot exist. They cannot be there. 
these are places that have been set apart by God. Now, the places can be set apart, but also within Scripture, we have things and people and days being set apart. That's what we have with the Sabbath day. In Exodus 20.11, it says, Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. <coughs> this dedication <coughs> is a separation from the other days, right? Very simply, that's what it is. God is saying this day is different and set apart from the other days. Just like the holy place in the temple is set apart from the ordinary activities of everyday life. So the Sabbath day isn't something magical or anything. It's just a day that's separate from the other days in your life, from the ordinary in your life, the ordinary activities. So in the case of a normal person that's doing business, that's working, that's all those types of things, and you're setting it apart to give to God, similar to tithing and all those other things. They're things that are set apart for God. That's why when Jesus came onto the scene, it was, he was very the, the Jewish people and leadership made the Sabbath day something that it was not supposed to be by making it not only way taking it out of context by extrapolating it and making it way bigger than it needs to be, but they actually made it more ordinary because it was on that day that they judged people and those types of things where the whole point of it was to be separated from their ordinary life. <clears throat> it's supposed to be a day devoted to the service of God, to be free of sin, to be free of evil. That's what these holy places dedicated to God are. And this is also the primary reason, as we said earlier, Jesus was so angry <coughs> with the people at the temple because they had made God's holy place, the thing that was set apart from this ordinary everyday use, into something like a shopping mall, into something like a community center. something that was not, it was not, God did not intend it to be. Now, this should lead us to some interesting questions about the modern church and kind of the space and place in which the church is within the church era. So we are in the church era, and the place and the building of the church, should this have the same reverential treatment as the temple had? Because within the temple and the tabernacle, you know, they had to exhibit all, or they had to kind of work really hard to keep the place clean, to keep it pure. And should we do the same thing in our modern church? Obviously, the answer is no. Um, because within Jewish culture and in ancient Israel and within the Bible, only the temple and the tabernacle were set apart to be these places. So the synagogues, which were the places that people actually met, were not set apart in this way. Anyone could enter the synagogues. They were not supposed to be holy places in the same way that the temple and the tabernacle were. So in that sense, no. The temple, or the temple is something completely different than what we would consider our everyday church. Or the Jewish people would. <clears throat> Only the temple and tabernacle were set apart in these ways. And the temple and tabernacle were specifically set apart because, one, that's where God dwelt, and two, that is where the remission of sins 
happened. That's where the Levitical duties, where you, um, where you repented by bringing sacrifices, that is where that happened. Okay, which in the church era, where does that happen? That happens with the person of Christ. That does not happen in a physical temple. That happens within our hearts to Christ, right? The main temple is the body of Christ. The holy place is within our hearts. When we see in John, he constantly says, God is dwelling with you. That's the same type of language that was used for the tabernacle. And we are made holy not by burning things on the altar or by washing ourselves in the laver. We are made holy by repentance, and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us holy. The church buildings are just places, and we know this. This is not new news to us. But they are where the holy people of God operate and gather together, not something. The place is, this place is not holy place because of the place. Whereas the tabernacle and the temple were holy places because of the places that they were. Because God said, this place is holy. The same goes for church workers and church ministers. So, in ancient Israel, the priests were a part of something special and set apart. We are not members of a special priesthood as pastors and teachers. The only priesthood we are a part of is the priesthood that all of us share as believers. So all of us are called to be set apart. Now, this is not saying that pastors and teachers shouldn't be held to a high standard like the priests were in the Old Testament. Um, This is really just saying that all believers are held to those standards of holiness as the priests were. So we all participate in the priestly duties of the church. And furthermore, it says very clearly in Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest. We do not have a high priest who is a man, or he is a man, but Jesus is our high priest, not some random person. We ourselves are called to be holy and set apart, not just the temple grounds, not just the buildings, etc., We have further evidence of this holiness because within the temple, when Jesus died and he gave up the ghost in Matthew 27, 51, it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. With that, God is making a statement that the holy place in the temple was no longer holy. The holiness had transferred to the person of Christ and within the hearts of His people. This is obviously very consistent with the teachings of Jesus and with the teachings of Paul. Jesus' constant, his constant message when He was ministering on earth was we need to move the concepts of sin and righteousness out of simple rule following into the hearts of our people. So, if you... Moses' law says, do not murder. Jesus said, well, I say, if you hate someone, then you've already murdered. You've already broken and transgressed the law. So all Jesus is doing is moving the point of contact or the point of breaking the law from the actual act 
to the heart issue within the person, right? And that is the key to Jesus' teaching, is moving sin from just committing the act to the heart of a man, how he commits it within his heart. That's what is happening here as well. The holy place moves from something that is merely physical to something within the heart of man. <clears throat> so, like all the other attributes, the attribute of holiness finds its fullness and absolution within the person of God. He is frequently called the Holy One of Israel. In Psalm 71.22, David says, I will praise you with the heart for your faithfulness. O oh my God, I will sing praises to you with the lyre. O oh, Holy One of Israel. Then in Isaiah 6.3, this is the angel proclaiming. This is that scene from the throne room. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is the ultimate Holy One. Evil and sin cannot enter His presence in any way. Even though we can be holy, we are not fully holy. We're still growing in our holiness and our purification. God is entirely pure, entirely holy, without blemish. He's utterly perfect in every way. That's why every aspect of the sacrificial system, of the marriage system, has to do with holiness and purity. Talking about the lamb that was without blemish, talking about the virgin bride. These are things without blemish and are holy. He is utterly perfect. So obviously as Christians and followers of this holy God, we are called to be His holy people. In Leviticus 19.2, it says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then we have a New Testament verse in 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. <clears throat> so there is clearly a part of this being holy that is definitely on the part of God. So this is talking about us. So part of our holiness is on God. It's His responsibility to make us holy, to set us aside, <clears throat> to set us apart to be his holy people. This is very similar to what he did with the Sabbath day and with the people of Israel. He is the one who sets us apart, and he is the one who makes us holy, right? Ultimately, that is the final say. He is the one who does it. However, as we saw in that 2 Corinthians passage, <clears throat> let us cleanse ourselves from holiness, or from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. We are to cleanse ourselves from defilement. There's an active part on, our, on the believer's part through repentance and living a life according to the statutes and commands that God has given us <coughs> to be holy. And that's why Paul says, bring holiness to completion. God has started a work in us, and it is our job to finish it by being holy by cleansing ourselves from defilement, by repenting. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, Paul says, that he may sanctify her, this is Christ sanctifying the church. <coughs> Sorry. 
having cleansed her by the washing of the water by the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So how does this holiness come about? As we saw with repentance, cleansing, but most importantly, washing of the water by the word, constantly taking in the word of God and the edification and the growth that comes from that. So we see here the goal of Christ is to make us pure, to make us holy, so we can be in communion and in His presence with Him forever. That's why He uses the bride language here in Ephesians. And this passage is actually taken out of the context of Paul saying, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, so that He might sanctify her. We are to be holy through the power of Christ. Now, not only are we as individuals made or called to be holy, but the whole earth will be made holy with the new heavens and the new earth. This will return and redeem the earth and all of creation to its original and intended position and status of being holy. God made heaven and earth perfect and without blemish, and it will return to that someday. We see that in Ephesians and in Romans where Paul writes that earth is crying out to be saved, to be redeemed, because it wants to be holy again. So when God seeks His own honor, um, what we're talking about there is God is actively trying, not trying, God actively works for His own honor. God actively works for His benefit, for His um, honor is a system of value and a system of currency almost. So God's holiness, so we have God being holy, He's, he's without blemish and without sin, but He's also working <clears throat> and he's devoted and seeking, as we have in this definition, to his own honor, meaning he is working to build up his honor and his name and his goodness. So he's going to be doing good acts. This is within his people. That's why he wants to make us holy. This is within his creation by redeeming the earth. And this is within the hearts of man by making us holy from within. So this is it's kind of a three-part attribute here that he works for his own honor and his own glory. That kind of... There's a lot more to it that I think we'll get to when we talk about the glory of God. Um, yeah, that's... Yeah, we're... Yeah, and... and Well, well, the other thing with the honor of God, so if He makes us holy, then we become a beacon of holiness like for the world to see. <clears throat> Whereas if we're running around defiled, well, we don't look like very good examples for the world to see. And so God wants us to be holy so we can represent Him faithfully. And that's where His honor comes in. And so... Him devoted to seeking His honor is making His people holy, is 
what he's doing to increase his honor. If that makes sense. And his honor is so the world will see him for who he is, what he is. That's, that's the ultimate goal, salvation of the world, the redeeming of the world. <clears throat> All right, now we're going to move on to peace. And peace is something that is very different than what I think we think of when we think of peace. <clears throat> so, our definition here, and we'll break it down, God's peace means that in God's being and in His actions, He is separate <clears throat> from all confusion and disorder, yet He is continually active in innumerable, well-ordered, fully controlled, simultaneous actions. We're going to start with a verse here in 1 Corinthians 14.33. 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. <clears throat> so Paul here is saying that God acts in a way that's not confusing or chaotic in any way. The converse of confusion and chaos is peace. So the converse of chaos and confusion also is order. So God is the God of order and rightness. And I didn't say righteousness, rightness. He is not chaotic. He is not confusing in any way. Those attributes belong solely to Satan and the enemy. <clears throat> so God is not confusing or chaotic in any way. In the Old Testament and in Jewish culture today, the word for peace is shalom. This doesn't just mean peace as in non-wartime or non-conflict or nothing bad happening in our life. <clears throat> but this peace means all is right with you. Your relationships are happy. Everything is in place as it should be. Isaiah 48.22 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. <clears throat> so God tells us that the wicked in this world cannot experience peace or this shalom that comes from God. That means only God can give us this true peace, true happiness. Um, this peace that we're talking about here is really like even in our Constitution and Declaration of Independence where it says the pursuit of happiness. <clears throat> this is what we're talking about here, where everything is right within your life, within your home, within your family. And it is clear from Scripture and just from our experience that this peace can only come from God. He's the only true source of order and peace in the universe. He's the only true source of order and peace within the universe. I think it's important for us to understand that this peace is not just inactivity. So we tend to think of peace as when nothing else is going around or going on when it's quiet. This is not the case. This is where the simple definition of peace breaks down. We view peace as the absence of conflict or war, whereas the peace God portrays is very active. It is an ordering or putting things in place, almost like organizing. 
although that's very a simplified version of this. <clears throat> God is constantly ordering the universe, ordering himself, ordering his people. He is an ordered, he is a logical God. Peace is also a fruit of the Spirit, and thus we are to demonstrate this peace. We are to live in peace with each other and with the world. This means that we are to live right and ordered lives. Chaos and confusion are not to be a part of the Christian walk. Just as God does not cause chaos, we are not to cause chaos or confusion in others. <clears throat> but rather, we are to work towards order and peace in the lives, in our own lives, and in the lives of the people around us. We are to be a beacon for order and for peace. Now, this peace also works very much in tandem with the other fruit of the Spirit, self-control. That's really what this is talking about. Ordered lives and have control over ourselves in every way. Now, a lot of New Age Christian teaching very much depends on the idea of God being chaotic and confusing. He's random God, and it's hard for us to understand His processes. That's just not true. God is logical. God is ordered, and He's full of understanding. We can understand Him. Anything that tells us that God is random, that God's chaotic, is, it, that's not God. That is a good test to tell if something is coming from God or from the enemy, is if it's confusing or chaotic. <clears throat> In fact, God's wisdom, which we talked about as Him knowing the best ways to do things, in Proverbs 3.17 is described in this way. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. All her paths are peace. <clears throat> so it's a, it's a pleasurable thing to live in peace. It's pleasant. Romans 14, 17, Paul describes the kingdom of God and says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So very much as Christians, we are to be about this peace of God, seeking to live ordered and peaceful lives with those that we encounter. This not only is good for us, you know, we live happy, secure you know, ordered lives, but it allows us to participate in God's character and show the world the reality of the peace of God. His peace is exactly what the decaying and dying world needs. We live in a time of great confusion and great chaos. God's peace truly is the only answer to these problems. <clears throat> His peace is what set things right and set things straight. It banishes confusion and makes things beautiful and orderly. The people of God should always be about striving for peace in every area of our lives, for that truly brings the presence of God into our world. <clears throat> God's peace is important, and it's important for us to be examples to the world because, as I said, there's nothing peaceful about our world that we live in, as you know, the events in the last week have demonstrated very clearly. And the answer is not 
anything but the peace of God being exhibited within the lives of the church. We're called to put on peace as part of the armor of God, and it's called, we are genuinely called to be separate from disorder and chaos. Yeah, which is very, you know, that is how other religions operate is with order and chaos. You know, other gods are chaotic, you don't understand them. And even monotheistic religions like Islam operate on kind of a chaos basis. They want to cause chaos in the lives of those around us. Our mission is to bring peace, to bring order to those who are around us who are, heath- who are heathens, whereas the mission of Islamists are to cause chaos in their lives to bring them to kill the heathen, Right? Our mission is to bring order and peace to their lives. Oh, big time. And inner strength is a definitely a big part of that, um, that idea of ordering. Um, ultimately, God is just, he, confusion is not a part of who God is. <coughs> He's ordered and he makes perfect sense to us because he is, well, maybe not to us, but he makes perfect sense to us, to himself, because he is not a God of confusion. He's a God of logic, a God of order, and we can trust him in that. Anything else? All right. Well, that is it for this evening. Thank you for showing up, even though it's a small group. As soon as it gets hot, I'm probably going to start doing these online because it's hot out. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for being our God of order, of peace, and of holiness. I pray that you'd be with us this week. Help us to bring peace (coughs) into the lives of all those that we encounter. Thank you for all of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.